I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chapter 10. Odd jobs. I met a man at a party. He said, I'm writing a novel. I said, oh really? Neither am I. Peter Cook. For better or worse, seeing as I possessed a functioning office, I would often be asked to help with report writing, editing, or other urgent requests for a fast turnaround. By virtue of being connected to the bookshop, some people leapt to the conclusion I must be able to read. Logically, this must also make me qualified as an editor. I received memoirs, first novels and short stories, as well as a barrage of reports on economics, agriculture, health, scholarships and funding applications. Sometimes written in English, others in Vinglish, in which I remain fluent. Or worse, reports from foreign consultants who couldn't write to be converted ASAP to functional English. Other requests I would pass along to more professional associates, although memoirs were sneeringly met with a caveat demanding an ego penalty and hardship allowance. Short of cash, I was reminded of this brutal assessment when I spent an agonising few weeks editing the memoirs of an NGO boss. He delivered ten heavy binders crammed full of musings, recounting every detail of his life. He had lived in amazing places, while there were remarkable things going on. But none of it happened to him, it was a long-winded rant about office politics, strangely interspersed every ten pages or so with an eye-wateringly graphic sex scene. I guess in an attempt to spice up the mediocrity, every grubby encounter was painted in vivid detail. They featured his wife and various hookers, although never at the same time. Page after page, women hurled themselves at him. I couldn't see the attraction... Maybe it was the bad pawn, or possibly that he felt cursed by his purple-headed monster. Somehow, it just put me off. A customer was leaving town after 12 months working with the voice of Vietnam. Big-heartedly, he offered his position to me as English online editor of the Communist Review, mouthpiece of the party. My brief stint overlapped with the 50th anniversary of the Dien Bien Phu victory over the French. Consequently, I received articles written by all the party hierarchy. I began to panic. What if I misinterpret the Vinglish to something not quite correct? There goes my visa. Here comes the gulag. Thankfully, the bigwigs had very good translators, so my skills were not needed. I was left with a stack of articles from old-school rabid cadres, to try and figure out what on earth they were trying to say, apart from the predictable imperialist running dog punctuating every second paragraph. After three months, my editorship came to an end when I was called into VOV and informed that they couldn't pay me for some time. Considering that they already owed me salary for two months, I replied that this was a happy coincidence because I also couldn't work for them for some time either. Another foreigner took my place 
unsuspecting and unknowingly pro bono. One evening, as I was about to lock the doors, an older Vietnamese man parked his Honda Cub and darted inside. He gazed eagerly at the shelves, before introducing himself as Professor Dr. People Teacher Ha, a gynaecologist who needed to speak to me urgently about vaginoplasty. Of course you do, I said, sensing a nutter. As it turned out, Ha had no interest in discussing the ins and outs of vaginoplasty, but was looking to broaden his expertise in gynaecology to include men. He was keen to introduce me to his new invention, a male contraceptive. He dug his hand deep into his pocket. Whoa, hold on a second, fella, I stuttered, but he had found the object of interest wrapped up in a bit of newspaper that he gingerly unfolded. It was a rough-cast metal pellet, about the size of a large rat turd, of which I was far too familiar. He explained that he was going to secure the plug in the vast deference, thereby blocking the flow of semen, et voila, no babies. Don't they have something like that already? Like a vasectomy, I suggested. No, this is better, he replied. I pictured a man after an unexpected erection, upset that he'd shot the cat. Another late customer arrived and listened intently to Ha's story, immediately recommending that Ha contact the Ministry of Social Evils, who surely must be crying out for such a magnificent idea. A flawed plan. Firstly, because there was no Ministry of Social Evils, and secondly, because Professor Dr. People Teacher Ha was barking mad. A few weeks later, Ha returned clutching a tattered photocopied French journal of gynaecology. He smacked it down, open-paged on the counter. Six splayed vaginas winked up at me. OK, Ha, this has gone on long enough. This is a bookshop. Another evening, a friend arrived as I was preparing to close the shop. She dumped a small plastic tennis racket on the counter. Discovered in the kitchenware aisle at the supermarket and purchased for a dollar. Neither of us had any idea what it was for. I checked out the equipment. It was battery-operated, with a switch that only seemed to illuminate a small diode. Unable to determine its exact function, I naturally started to whack it against my palm as you would with a tennis racket. Instantaneously, I received a bolt of electricity that threw me off my chair. My friend, hysterical with laughter. This was my first introduction to the ubiquitous mosquito zapper, an essential piece of kit in a Hanoi home arsenal. You're never more than six feet from a rat or a mozzie zapper in Hanoi. Occasionally, an airport taxi would slide to a halt outside the doors, and a flustered expat would struggle in with statues, large paintings in wooden frames, or even ceramic busts of Ho Chi Minh. Ah, the heavy thing. Most Vietnamese people at that time had not travelled by plane very often. As a parting gesture, a gift sometimes in excess of 30 kilograms might be given to a fond expat leaving town, generally just as they caught a cab to the airport. While the thought was appreciated, a side trip to the bookshop sometimes ensued, where the excess baggage would be offloaded and passed on to my cleaner. Travel restrictions had only recently been lifted for the local population, and Vietnamese friends would listen in amazement when I told them that I was able to move freely anywhere I liked in my own country, without asking permission 
or requesting special documents. Some of my neighbours had in fact lived abroad, having been educated in Eastern Europe or the former Soviet Union. They had been away from their friends and family for eight years, spending two years learning a new language and the remaining six completing an undergraduate and master's degree. My grocer had spent his youth on a scholarship in East Berlin and he insisted on speaking to me year after year in German, hoping that one day I would miraculously become fluent via immersion while buying soap powder or prawn crackers. Many Vietnamese people would apologise because English was regrettably their sixth language, having already mastered French, Chinese, Russian and German in addition to their native tongue. Embarrassingly, I only spoke a rough version of English, worse French and a pidgin Vinglish of my own invention. During the first year when SARS had hit, tourists had evaporated, the staff disappeared and I was holding the fort. No customers. The expats scrambled and left in fear of the impending plague. You would expect I'd be nice to the customers who showed up. I wasn't. Instead, I reflected on a recent disclosure that all foreign men get dragged for whatever reason to karaoke bars and all foreign women don't. This means that all foreign men secretly have a karaoke song up their sleeves should the need present itself. All foreign women had no idea about any of this. I checked. I thought I could put this newfound knowledge to some use. I would determine if the male customers were resident or not and then see what happened. I learned early on that it's astonishing what people are prepared to tell you without any prompting, because you're behind a desk. I had no idea of this behaviour. Customers had already divulged infidelities, dodgy pasts, prior convictions, even sexual assault. Self-help, third shelf to the left. While the first few tourists got off the hook... The third victim to wander into the pantheon of imperialist propaganda was British. Tall, but a little heavy. A very nice guy who had been teaching English in some faraway province and was so grateful an English bookshop existed. He made a very good selection of a large number of books. I should have worshipped at his feet for helping pay the week's rent. Instead, after collecting his money, I slid the books back toward me with a firm grip and said, ''We've got a new policy.'' and wouldn't hand them over unless he sang three bars of his favourite karaoke song. What? he stammered, pie-eyed. Go on, what is it? Hotel California? Something by the Carpenters? Hey June? My way? He was gobsmacked. I clutched his books. Tight. It was a standoff. Open-mouthed, he peered to one end of the shop, then the other. No witnesses. No cameras. English or Vietnamese? he whispered. English, go on then, what is it? Dancing queen, he muttered, still looking for a camera secretly filming, but wasn't. Off you go, three bars. And so he did. He even threw in a few moves. Old school. Oh, young and sweet, only seventeen. I'd hit the jackpot. So what if Sars was sending the bookshop down the gurgler? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Here are your books. See you again. I didn't, but it's not hard to figure out why. For the next couple of weeks, I terrorised what few customers I had. My way was a favourite. Someone was a Johnny Cash fan. A lot of Beatles showed up. 
Glenn Campbell. I was stunned. Most people belted out a number with little encouragement. Many customers like to quote various facts, figures or anecdotes memorised from their travel Bibles, no matter how strange or improbable. Most of the authors of the guidebooks would drop by the bookshop to get an update on what businesses had opened or closed, or other general gossip, and in particular on what their rival publications were up to. Travel writers were almost always not very well paid, and on very tight deadlines, so any information that could save them time for updates was worth pursuing. Sometimes errors would slip in and get merged with the general content, and several editions later had become fact. The oft-repeated story about the preserved Ho Chi Minh transiting to Russia for regular touch-ups was such an example. Vietnam has always possessed the expertise, having been taught by Russian scientists and disclosed in Ilya Zbarsky's incredible memoir, Lenin's Embalmers. Even so... It would be very peculiar for the Vietnamese government to allow their most significant propaganda piece out of the country for touch-ups, Russian or otherwise. Surely, if this was necessary, wouldn't it be easier for the experts and their magical chemicals to come to Uncle Ho? Vietnam has a proud history of gossip and disinformation, strung together by complete rubbish. My neighbours reliably informed me that my embassy paid $4,000 a month to all its citizens who lived in Hanoi. I suggested sarcastically that would mean no one would stay at home and everyone would move to Hanoi. One neighbour, when asked why a whitewashed line had suddenly appeared painted on the pavement the length of the street, said it was to deter rats. Rats cannot cross a white line, he asserted. In fact, he went on, Both rats and cockroaches share this paranoia. Sceptical, I asked if perhaps it might be that the local government was again tearing up the pavement and the white line was to guide the machinery. No, he informed me emphatically. It's definitely for rats and cockroaches. Three days later, a machine arrived and tore up the pavement. I should have drawn a white line around him. Passing through the old quarter... I was intrigued to see a tombstone featuring an etched ceramic photograph announcing the demise of Britney Spears. Rather than a death foretold, it was just a photo of an unknown pretty blonde girl that the stonemasons had used to promote their product. The tombstone called her Anna and stated that she had met an untimely end. Forever looking for a marketing angle, this inspired me to create an outrageous rumour about the bookshop that would ultimately get published as fact in the guidebooks. I hatched a plan. Customers and friends often commented on the attractive hand-painted cement floor tiles in the bookshop. These had once been ubiquitous in many Hanoi buildings, but had since given way to the larger and highly glazed variety. The hand-painted cement tiles are about 2 centimetres thick and 25 centimetres square, but had gone out of favour with the locals as they were seen to be old-fashioned. Foreigners, however, thought them charming and often mistook their presence in a building to suggest that construction might date from the French colonial period. The tile village outside of Hanoi was still baking, painting and churning out these designs on a daily basis. One customer, an artist, was so taken with the geometric design she created a beautiful lacquer triptych based on the same pattern. 
The floor tiles in the bookshop generally fooled most people into thinking that the building was much older than its ten years. Riding on this misperception, I decided that a plaque was needed to verify that Jane Fonda had indeed transmitted her controversial Radio Hanoi broadcasts from the building in 1972. I thought it would be a good test to see how long it took to become fact in one of the guidebooks. I could even charge patrons to sit on the same tiny blue plastic beer hoy stool that she had used, but maybe that was taking things too far. Ho Chi Minh lay embalmed in a Soviet-style mausoleum, not far from the old quarter, and had a day off on Mondays. The bookshop kept the same schedule. To visit Uncle Ho is a peculiar experience in Cold War propaganda. Nevertheless. He remains an icon for Vietnamese people, and reproductions of his image are strictly controlled. I once haggled with a woman selling strange but intriguing collages of Ho Chi Minh made from torn postage stamps. It's usual to see Uncle Ho depicted in a variation of only about six official poses. All six poses had been perfectly reproduced in collage using stamps. A discussion with the gallery owner informed me that the artist was permitted to make these images as a sideline to his regular job, as a government artist employed to paint the images used for postage stamps. The scenario seemed too ridiculous. The guy spends his day painting pictures for postage stamps, then returns home to tear stamps off his images to make collages of the pictures that are on the postage stamps in the first place. Had I entered a twilight zone? No, I was in Hanoi. I still have the picture, the final price inflexible. The artist, after all, had to pay for the stamps. I met another artist, an older man who recreated black and white versions of any image in pencil, tucked away in a studio so small only two people could fit inside. He was an expert in photorealism. But generally kept his work to classic images of ethnic minorities or pictures of Vietnam's last emperor. There was a team of family members beyond the confines of the studio, in an assembly line to rival Toyota, shading and adding more complex details, stacking up hundreds and hundreds of identical drawings. Given that no one seemed to know how to find him to buy his art, I tried to encourage him to exhibit his work to a larger clientele at the bookshop. Where I would sell it for him on commission, he spent some weeks considering this offer before sending his son to negotiate that I should just buy all of his works and then exhibit them whenever I wanted. Close to his tiny studio was a dental practice with an extraordinary window enticing clients via a giant gaudy painting of a half X-rayed head, jaw, and teeth jutting almost 3D at passers-by. It was fabulously awful, and I wanted it too. How I could possibly use it to market a bookshop was unclear, but I'm sure I could come up with my own propaganda along the lines of "reading stops your teeth from rotting." Unfortunately, the dentist was not keen on extracting his window and selling it to me. The sale of propaganda art was only then becoming a sought-after commodity. A friend has secured a license to reprint propaganda images for sale. He possessed a better grasp of commerce, and so he agreed to permanently exhibit his prints in the bookshop. Amazing images of smiling commando women with babies tied to their backs and bazookas slung over their shoulders began to fill the walls. 
laughing army personnel riding ancient tanks in search of the imperialist aggressors were some of the mirages of life the way it wasn't. Another foreign customer, a set designer and artist for the film industry, was shown a secret cache of genuine propaganda posters by one of the many galleries. He said he was astounded at the intricate attention to detail, describing how the tears, colorization, and staining impressed him. It was as perfect a fake as he himself could make. I had access to an expert framing shop, a family business run by two young brothers. They possessed a remarkable sense for colour and texture and had the job of mounting all of the prints, paintings or photographs to be sold in the bookshop. Without fail, they always chose the perfect combination of frame and matte board to perfectly complement the article. Their shop was a catastrophe of wood mouldings, sawdust, aluminium offcuts and young children, heaped together in the main workspace around a screaming buzzsaw. Located near the railway line, and sometimes on the railway line if painted frames needed to dry, theirs and other shops and houses had crept to the very edge of safety. Trains were dangerously within an arm's reach of the door. Day and night, diesel locomotives chugged out of Hanoi, incessantly blasting their air horns for hawkers, babies, animals, laundry and pop-up restaurants to vacate the tracks. Artists all around the tourist traps had set up shop making fake paintings of well-known works. Although unlikely to be mistaken for the real thing, the standard of copying was somehow to be admired. Vietnamese copied everything. Photocopy clothes, food, jewellery, handbags, machinery and, of course, books. They were all fair game. Life was moving at a frantic pace. There was just no time for new ideas. Why bother when you could just copy someone else's? Hanoi is a city of extremes. The high society Vietnamese, the high so, were heavy consumers of luxury goods and were fast to point out their genuine article. The fancy French hotel began to demolish the small outlet it reserved for Louis Vuitton products. I assumed it had been a poor business decision attempting to sell $4,000 handbags and expensive wallets to cash-strapped Hanoians most of whom haggled over 20-cent bowls of pho. However, it was not a demolition, but a major expansion. In addition to the strong local demand, because an outlet was not available in the south, wealthy Vietnamese customers regularly flew from Ho Chi Minh City to buy the latest haute couture accessories. One of the first phrases learnt in Hanoi was bao nhiêu tiền, how much money. Foreigners and locals are constantly queried on the price of any and all of their possessions. Of course, whatever price was offered, it was instantly dismissed as having paid too much. Attempting to rattle the critics, I disclosed that remarkably, each of my possessions cost me only one dollar. Can you believe it? A large number of Vietnam veterans from America and Australia passed through Hanoi, and many would find their way to the bookshop. Americans with personal connections to the war sometimes had more unresolved issues than the Vietnamese, or maybe they were just a bit more fragile while back in Nam. There was also a fair smattering of foreign kooks floating around, who weren't involved in the war at all, but who harboured a strange resentment that they had never been drafted or able to participate. 
One guy showed up from backwards somewhere USA with a shaved head, reflector sunglasses and dressed entirely in army fatigues. He had been decked out as Rambo by the local emporium back home. A nice enough fella, an insurance salesman, too young for the war, but was a little unhealthily obsessed. He said over the years he had raised thousands of dollars in his small town for veterans and eventually felt he should make his own pilgrimage to Nam to help Vietnamese. The locals just thought he was a wacko, as did I. Vietnamese people, while deeply scarred from the hostilities, are now two generations since the end of the Vietnam War, or the American War as it is known, and it is probably as distant to most of them as the Second World War was to someone like me, born in the 60s. A baby boom after 75 meant the majority of the population are under 35 years old, with a youthful focus firmly on the future rather than a tragic past. A very pleasant American man appeared one day and browsed the shelves. I elicited he was working at the American consulate. As I watched him review the books, it seemed from his poise that he may be military or ex-military. In fact, he seemed the right age to have served in Vietnam in his youth. My overactive imagination suspected he might be CIA. Ironically, after much browsing, the only book he selected was a biography of Kim Philby, a member of the notorious Cambridge Soviet spy circle in Britain. Proof positive. He paid for his purchase and, as he departed, loudly, I urged him not to consider the book an instruction manual. The poor man caught in the headlights, exited pronto. Was he? Wasn't he? Perhaps he just wanted to escape the lunatic in the bookshop. To ensure the book satisfied regular customers' tastes, I found myself reading a wide range of genres that, ordinarily, I wouldn't have contemplated. While crime books arrived every day, good crime fiction was hard to get hold of, and finding gems by new or even established authors was always a bonus. I found myself consuming bodice rippers and whodunits for the couple that bought prodigiously, she the romance novels, he the how-to-kill-your-wife thrillers. A foreigner yet couple, a new relationship, spent considerable time making their choices, he the Kama Sutra, she a stack of dieting books. The Harry Potter phenomenon had arrived, and I was reluctant to make such an expensive purchase and be the first to import these books into the country. I could only assume, after sorting through the red tape and expense, all would be conveniently appropriated as imperialist superstition, then diverted to the book mafia, and none would make it to the shop. The date of release found a Vietnamese girl at 6am at the door, desperate to buy the latest instalment that I didn't have. She left inconsolable. My concerns for importation were justified, It took about a week before the dodgy bookshops began selling hundreds of Chinese counterfeit copies at about a third of the price I could have sold the genuine article. I consumed science fiction and fantasy when I could get it, but decent stock was always in short supply. A steady stream of memoirs and holiday novels usually found their way to the shelves from tourists passing through. Leafing through one of Bill Bryson's books, A long list of American insurance claims for household accidents was described, sustained via innocuous objects, such as silverware or soft furnishings. How clumsy could you be to be aggrieved by trousers? As I turned to return Bryson to the shelf, 
I found myself flipped upside down, flat on my back from the doorknob, catching my T-shirt. Another mishap after hours and locked inside, I had slid down the narrow stairs and become pinned by my middle finger, jammed tight in the iron balustrade, trapped like a rat to the rat glue, marooned. The phone just out of reach, survival manuals a world away in non-fiction. Customers to the shop came from all walks of life. However, those easy to pick were ones whose careers revolved around books. Owners of bookshops elsewhere would commiserate with the difficulties imposed on running a bookshop in Hanoi. Librarians could be spotted carefully perusing the shelves, often caressing covers and stopping to rearrange the titles. Authors would often visit the shop and kindly offer to sign copies of their work if we were lucky enough to have any in stock. To be sold at a reduced price or the page sliced from the book by over-vigilant staff wary of vandalised stock. Booksellers from abroad enthusiastically offered to be book mules and would sometimes deliver a bag of second-hand books on their next holiday. A local publisher arrived to scan the shelves. His English was very good and he provided his card that showed he ran a local printing house. Elated that there was such good choice available, he excitedly asked if we had any of the New York Times bestsellers from a list he slid across the counter. In particular, he was after Bill Clinton's autobiography. It had only just been published, and by coincidence, recently purchased in hardcover from a tourist arriving from the UK. Skeptical, I asked what he intended to do with these books. Translate them into Vietnamese and sell them, of course. I reminded him that that might be infringing copyright. Unless you have permission, I queried. Oh, that's not necessary for non-fiction books, he responded. I think you'll find it is, I offered. Quietly, he dragged his business card and bestseller list back across the counter and exited the bookshop, minus the hardcover or anything else. He never returned, but took to sending one of his non-English-speaking staff to make covert purchases. Vietnamese customers were always under suspicion. Obviously, people who were unable to speak or read English received more attention than the others. In an English bookshop, that was pretty much a giveaway they were up to something. Turning this to our own advantage, regular visits from fake anglophones prompted a new category for the shelves, books unlikely to be sold to our particular clientele, with titles such as Illustrated Serbian Folk Dancing, Macrame Dreamcatchers and others were lumped together marked Best Sellers, neatly written in both English and Vietnamese. The publishing house staff made several purchases for rapid translation over the next year or so, before eventually realising that the hype we conferred to the latest Boy Meets Tractor space fantasy was perhaps a little overstated. I maintained a good relationship with various businesses and hotels around town. We were happy to send each other customers, and I would drag them into supporting whatever harebrained marketing scheme I had running. I would try and patronise or promote their efforts, although no pressure was required to attend the annual La Fête des Fromages, run by the swanky French hotel. It was an event where nearly 100 different cheeses would be flown in from around the world, and promoted to wannabe gourmands to try the fabulous array of fine wine and cheese. Amateurs 
would try to eat their way through them all, fail miserably, and fall headlong into lactic shock. I speak from experience. Latching onto an available Frenchman to discern exactly what cheeses to target proved to be the most useful advice. My schemes to promote the bookshop were varied. I would host book launches or other events that sometimes included a homemade martini fountain. Assembled using a concoction of pumps and hoses, I jammed the workings inside hollow ceramic Alsatian dogs purchased from a neighbouring shop. Fired up, they spout from their mouths the local Hanoi vodka tinged with vermouth. The bookshop was a self-funding entity. This was cheapskate retail, just like my local neighbours. A public service, if you will, while I tried to confine myself upstairs to do my real job and leave the running of the bookshop to the Vietnamese staff. On top of the several extra dollars per title to cover the fake censorship, other expenses, such as transport or publicity, had to be covered in pricing of books. For marketing, a decent photo and a few hundred words about the goings-on at the bookshop delivered early to the local tourist magazines, more often than not got published each month. One year, the bookshop collaborated with the local foreign cinema for a short film festival, in a snub to the troubles that plagued both our houses. It was the runaway highlight of an admittedly limited social calendar. A small step beyond numbering factories, a la Soviet style, meant everything from milk to banks at that time had been prefaced with Vina. My contribution was to invent Vina Coup as a collection of loosely haiku poems written by my customers about Hanoi. Kumquats. There's a thing. We think them quaint and bitter. Here, they're potted spring. Onion flavour taste. Crunch expected in my fur. Never-ending love. Dead dog markets. Woman chant in pagoda, contrastingly loud. Sparkling water, perfumed pagoda, scent of jasmine. A room of clumsy men, meet on plastic stools again. It's just half past ten. Cold breath, cloudy white, foggy helmet, window blur, danger in the street. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 